good morning. Uh, my name is Lisa Adams. Um, and like you heard, I am a co-director at 40 Orchards. Um, I'm also uh, wrapping up my Masters of Divinity. I spend time um, with folks who are incarcerated or coming out of incarceration. Um, and that is kind of how I spend most of my time. I've got a lot of, like, got one grown and flown kid, one still at home, my husband, um, a dog. Um, that's kind of, it's kind of the gist of it. Um, with all of that, like, I've had an interesting wrestling uh, experience with church. Um, and so what I want to start with today is actually an embodiment practice, a little bit of centering for us this morning. Because here's what I know, is that we all brought some stuff in this morning. And um, it might be that we brought in, like, stress about finances, work, home. It might even be that we brought in some tension about faith and church and all kinds of things that are come along with stepping inside of a building. Um, there's just a lot of things, and that can kind of add up and stack up, and sometimes it ends up that we have a lot of things that we're bringing in. And so what I want to do is give you the option of setting those things down this morning, even if it's just for the next 30 minutes. So this particular embodiment practice comes from Valerie Kaur. Um, there's a few edits that I made, <laughs> but it is mostly her work. So let's begin um, with closing your eyes if you're comfortable. Go ahead and settle into a comfortable position. And start by taking some deep breaths. Just pay attention to your breathing. Now place a hand on your heart and another on your belly. And let the breath come, filling your belly up. And hold that breath for a count of four and then let it go. Notice what it feels like to let this deep of a breath into your body. As you breathe out, let go of any stresses or burdens that can be set down. Know that God will hold them for you. As you breathe in, feel the new life coming to nourish you and give you strength. Remember that the Spirit of God, who is referred to as the Ruach, the wind, the breath, is so very near to you. Remember that it is God who breathes life into us. As you continue to breathe, call to mind something interesting or something beautiful. As you picture it, notice the way the light hits it. Notice its color, its shape. Notice its beauty. No matter what is happening in the world right now, no matter how dark or violent or painful, this beautiful thing also exists. Take another deep breath and notice if it is a little easier. When we give our attention to wonder, we call it breathtaking but perhaps we should call it breath-giving. Awe stretches our capacity to be present and let in even a sense of joy. Take a moment and notice what you're feeling in your body. Let me pray. 
God living presence. Thank you for this morning and for all the potential that it contains. We pray that this time and space would be a place of safety, of curiosity, and of questions. Thank you for the goodness that is in this place. May we see and hear what you have for us. May we see and hear each other. And may we notice the spirit moving. Amen. So I'm really passionate about um, people participating in and contributing to sermons. Oftentimes in church, it can be hard to remember that we all have a lot to contribute um, beyond volunteering and beyond serving. Each of you in this room are theologians. You have thoughts, you have ideas, you have experiences around who you believe God is. Well, that makes you a theologian. That's theology. And because each of us brings something different, our age, our gender, our level of education, the amount of time we spent in buildings like this, there's a huge array of wisdom in this room. So if the only voice you heard this morning was mine, it might be a really delightful morning. But I think you would be missing out on all the wonderful wisdom and insight that's actually in this room already. So I'm gonna give you a metaphor, and maybe this metaphor will help you kind of understand what I'm inviting you all to. I want us to cook a huge family dinner together. Now in my family, we all learned to cook from my grandma. She is the kindest person I have ever known. When it comes to cooking, she's always been willing to share her recipes and tell all of her secrets. If you needed help, she would always be willing to help. My grandma always trusted that everyone would do their part and it would all work out fine. There would be a good meal to eat. My aunts taught me that many hands make light work. Everyone had different tasks to do, but when we all pitched in, not only was the work lighter, the food tasted better. My mom was always trying new recipes. My Aunt Deb would always bring the tried and true favorites. And my Aunt Trish, who lives in Arkansas, would bring in new spices and flavors, at least for Minnesotans. My uncles, they needed a little encouragement to participate, uh, one in particular. Um, but once someone needed help, they jumped right in. They set up tables, carried heavy trays, boxes, and filled in when there was something to be done. Sometimes it meant peeling potatoes, and sometimes it meant cracking jokes and lightening the mood. All of us grandkids and kids would do what we were told, and the older we got, the more enjoyable it became to be in the kitchen cooking and being a part of all those wonderful conversations. <clears throat> it's a big production, <laughs> but at the end of it, we sit down and we have a really big family dinner to enjoy. And that's what I'm hoping for today. I want all of us gathered in here to pitch in and make a meal together. And by meal, I mean sermon. We're all gonna make the sermon together. So we're gonna try to do something that maybe you haven't done. For some of you, this might make you really uncomfortable. And I'm sorry, but stick with it. <laughs> it's gonna be all right. Usually when we come to church, it's kind of like going out to eat. Like you get a meal served to you and you eat what's put at your table. And this time, we're just hoping that we're going to make that whole meal together. And I'm hoping that it'll be a delicious meal, maybe, that when you walk out of here, you're still talking about it later. So are you guys ready? Maybe. <laughs> um, 
For those of you who are introverts or really don't want to participate, <laughs> I just want you to know there's, it's always okay to pass. Um, you, you don't have to. And it's really like your voice and your perspective matters. It, it, it's important and it's good. So maybe we'll warm up a little bit before we break you all into little groups. Um, think back to that text. Can we put the Bible passage up? Um, I don't know about you, but like that was a lot. <laughs> to even try to remember, what did they say? <laughs> what did Sarah read? Um, thinking back to it, was there anything that like caught your eye? Was there something that you were like wondering about or had a question or it was like, what was that? Um, feel free to like just shout it out. We don't have to uh, do anything crazy. But if there was anything about that Hebrews passage that, that caused a moment of wonder for you, I would love to know. Yes. Yeah. Who's Melchizedek? And why is he coming up? And you can, there are multiple ways to pronounce it. I've seen Meli, like Melchizedek. Yeah. We'll go with Melchizedek. Anybody else have anything they noticed? Yes, Sarah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so Sarah said that Jesus couldn't make himself the priest, which is interesting to notice. Sometimes when we have like big parts of scripture, it's hard to like, like what am I supposed to take from that? Where do I, where do I focus? So this morning, I'm going to try to give you a little bit of like, a little bit of information, a little bit of background, and I'll set you up with a few questions. And then you can, either at your tables or just with a couple people next to you, you can go off and talk about those questions, I'll give you about... Five minutes or so, we'll come back. Some people might share. I'll give you a few more bits of background. And so that's kind of our process this morning. We're just going to get some background, and then we're going to have some conversations with each other. And so, and we'll share a little bit of what we're doing, and that will be our morning. Sound okay? So just so you know, there are not right answers. We're not shooting to get the answer which is sometimes feels weird. Like sometimes we want it to be a particular answer. There's not. This is about conversation and bringing what you know, what your lived experience is, into what this text is telling you. So we'll start with a little bit of background on Hebrews. Um, Hebrews is an interesting, interesting book. Um, it's called an epistle. It's a letter. But it does not read like a letter. It reads much more like a sermon, um, but it does get classified with our epistles. Um, there are, um, there can be some problems with Hebrews, um, depending on what you, where you come from and what you know. Um, it is sometimes called one of the most anti-Semitic books in the Bible. Um, so it's careful when we're reading it. It's important to kind of really be careful with what we're pulling forward and what we're talking about and to be careful that we don't tread into that territory of saying something or believing something about our Jewish brothers and sisters that would be harmful. But it's also, we don't know a lot about it. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know the author. 
Um, the word Hebrews never appears in the text, so we actually don't even know who it was written to, which is pretty rare for our letters. We usually kind of have a little way to settle it in, and we kind of don't with this book. But what we do know is that this author really, really, really loves Jesus, and they use a lot of imagery about ritual and temple practices. It's written sometime between like 55 and 95 CE. And the second temple is destroyed in 70 CE. So you kind of have that bookend of like, maybe it was right before the temple at 55. Temple's destroyed at 70. Or maybe it's written a little bit after, and maybe up to like 95. So whatever it is, it's been being written really close to that time and being circulated about that time. So knowing that that temple is being destroyed is really kind of inviting us to wonder What's happening to the recipients of this letter? Like, are they in deep pain? Do they have questions about all kinds of things because the temple no longer exists? And to help us remember that we don't have a New Testament. No one has their own Bible. In fact, this group of people is still trying to figure out, what does it even mean to be a Christian? What am I doing? What does this mean? And so there's a lot of wrestling happening. When you lose that center, like the destruction of the temple, it was central to the Jewish faith. It was central to their practices. It is the place where God resided. Everyone was taking pilgrimages to go to the temple. It's where your sacrifices were offered. It's the setting, really, for many of our gospel stories. Jesus spends a lot of time at the temple. And for us, the closest thing we have to the temple is this church. So for the table discussion, this next group of questions, we're going to discuss these questions. I'll repeat them, but here's first round. What happens if church, not just this church, but every church, goes away? What happens to baptism, communion, all of our practices? Do you still do them? And what would you miss most if church went away? So I'll repeat them again, and then I'll give you about five minutes to find somebody at your table. You can have a big group discussion, whatever you're most comfortable with. And then I'll call you back. But what happens if the church, not just this church, the whole church, goes away? What happens to baptism, communion, all of our practices? Do you still do them? And what would you miss most if church went away? Go ahead and discuss amongst yourselves. Okay, if you want to start wrapping up the conversation, we'll come back together. Okay, I'm going to have Andrew be available on the mic. I would love to know or just hear from like one or two people. 
something that your group talked about or something that you discovered in your conversation this morning? Don't be shy. Um, well, yeah, I mean, something that we were talking about was um, that the church, you know, mainly is built around community, you know, mm -hmm. and that's why people, you know, end up coming. But for the most part, taking it back in history, Christ did not really start the church. And I feel like church is mainly for the community, but a lot of people, when they think about church, it's like Christ and church, and those two don't really connect. But over time, we've connected it to, and there's this disconnection, you know. But anyways. Yeah, no, thank you. There is, like, there is some wrestling to kind of think about, like, when does the church begin and what is the church for? For sure. Does anybody else have something they want to add? I mean, I know you all are having good conversation. I could see that happening. We actually um, returned your question with a question. <laughs> yeah. um, and that is something that's been on several people's minds um, as we prepare for April, and that is, what do you mean by church? Yeah. Do you mean the building? We know that there are churches that meet in coffee shops and people's homes, and I've Personally, what came to mind is when I've been part of 40 Orchards meetings. That feels more like what I want from church. <laughs> so I think that that's part of the takeaway for me is expanding perspective about what church is. And one of the things that came up was our individual lives mm -hmm. and how we live our lives outside of the building on Sundays and Wednesday nights. So that was a key takeaway for us is expanding how we see that. Yeah, yeah. We have time for one more. My husband Dave and I have been reading a book called Joy Fueled. And in there, the authors, um, on, the, on the cover of the book, it says 65 million people have left church. And it's not because they want to leave God. And they say that Jesus defined church as where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst of them. And they brought out this wonderful point that where two or three of us are gathered in his name, we get to have access to the Holy Spirit in those other people. And it's an incredible thought to think that we get double the Holy Spirit if we are relating to others who are following him. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Well, let's, we're going to keep going in our text. Uh, we're going to get to Melchizedek. Um, the author names Jesus as the high priest, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By show of hands, how many people have heard a sermon on Melchizedek? A few. <laughs> I for sure never did. The Christian Reformed Church never talked about that when I was growing up. Um, 
But Melchizedek is actually mentioned three times in the Bible. In our passage, like Hebrews gets it, um, Psalm 110 gets it, but we're introduced in Genesis. So it's actually Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20. So I'm going to read them for you so you kind of hear, like, this is our first introduction to them. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. So this passage in Genesis really could be an entire all-day scripture circle, and it has been. (laughs) There's a lot in this passage, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you a few like helpful hints of what's happening. So Melchizedek's name, we're going to translate it. So Melech is king, and Sedek is either righteousness um, or justice. And Salem, Shalem, is peace or wholeness. So you can kind of hear how Shalem and Shalom have a similar rooting, and that's how they, like, it's kind of why they mean the same thing. So putting it together, Melchizedek's name is king of justice, righteousness, king of peace, wholeness. And this king is doing some very interesting things. So he brings out bread and wine to Abram. This is the first time that we see bread and wine getting paired together in the Bible. He is named as the priest of God Most High which is also the first usage of priest in the Bible. Melchizedek is blessing Abram. It is the first time that a person is blessing another person in the Bible. And then someone gives a tithe. The Hebrew is a bit ambiguous, but most translators would agree that it looks like it is Abram giving a tithe to Melchizedek. It is the first time that we see the word tithe being used in the Bible. So we have bread and wine, a blessing, and a tithe. All together, for the first time, with Melchizedek and Abram. Anybody have any questions? (laughs) Right? I mean, we're in Genesis 14. Abram has a promise, but not yet a covenant. We haven't met Hagar and Ishmael, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Zilha, Bilha. We have not been introduced to the temple, the tabernacle. We don't even have the Ten Commandments. Melchizedek is a priest before there is even a glimmer of who we understand priests to be before there is even an institution or a system in place for how to follow God. So for our next table conversation, let's keep talking about Melchizedek. We're going to kind of build on what you kind of talked about the first one and add to it. So why might the author of Hebrews be tying Jesus to Melchizedek? What happens when you have no rules, no guidelines, no system to tell you how to do things? How is this helpful and how is this hard? 
So I'll read them one more time and then give you five minutes to discuss. Why might the author of Hebrews be linking Jesus to Melchizedek? What happens when you have no rules or guidelines or systems to tell you how to do things? How is this helpful? How is this hard? Go ahead and talk amongst yourselves. Um, we'll do it the same way as we did last time. If there's anybody that wants to um, share something that your group talked about or something that you either have a question about, maybe something you discovered in your conversation, we'd love to hear it. So in our last conversation, we talked about what we learned from COVID, sort of making church very different. And in this conversation, it felt like it was a continuation of that to some extent where we talked about how without a structure for people to interact with each other, it's harder to be creative generally and in our relationships with each other. So the rituals provided in the story were, um, you know, the meaning that is brought through them is it's sort of like, you'd like to think that's possible in a world with total freedom, but then you probably would end up creating some sort of new structure <laughs> yeah. anyway to, yeah. Um, yeah. to allow ourselves to understand what we're doing with each other. Yeah, great, thank you. Anyone else? Okay, um, for sake of time, I'm just gonna keep uh, moving right along. And so, um, one of the things that's interesting is the history of priests over the, over the course of time and in the Bible. And it's interesting because it initially starts out that we get a lot of stuff in Leviticus about how the priestly line is going to happen, and it's going to be through the line of Levi. But by the time we get to Jesus, Herod is the person that is appointing the priests. Right, we have this whole new relationship between power and priests. And what we see pretty consistently through the Bible is that when that power and that priesthood gets intertwined, we have corruption and we have violence. And the place that is supposed to be a safe place is no longer safe. And in the midst of all that, that violence, the corruption, and danger, that temple being destroyed, is where we encounter Hebrews. Let me read verses 15 and 16 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin, let us therefore approach the throne with great boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This letter is reminding us that Jesus is the good high priest. Jesus who has been tempted and tried and has been found good. Jesus has suffered and continues to suffer with us. Jesus is a high priest who feels, who sympathizes, and understands our lived experiences in this world. Jesus can be found trustworthy. Amidst all that corruption and violence, Jesus is still good.
And if we're paying close attention, then we see that we are not being told to get rid, like, that everything's bad. Throw it all out. Get rid of the whole thing along with the temple. In fact, it's offering us a way to anchor through the story of Melchizedek. We can anchor in Jesus because Jesus anchors outside of all of that. We are being invited to imagine Jesus as a high priest before everything got so challenging and so difficult. One of the things that I've been thinking about with this passage is that it's not really about us doing anything. It's really about Jesus. And there's been times in my life that I've been hurt by a church community and I've wondered what I believe, why do I believe it, what is this all for? And for me, what I'm sitting with is that I can root in Jesus. Past the rituals, past the systems, past the hurt and so many unknowns, Jesus is a trustworthy leader. Now, normally what I would do is I would have everybody do takeaways, (laughs) but I want to let you just linger and think about it. Think about what it might mean for Jesus to be a good high priest. What does that mean for the church? And what does that mean for us? What are we being invited to? I want to close uh, with this poem from Drew Jackson. And before I do that, I want to thank you for helping make this big family meal together. It's just as chaotic as my family meals, and I appreciate that. And I'm not entirely sure what you all are taking away, um, which feels like those make for good conversations on the car ride home. Um, Drew Jackson has a book. It is called God Speaks Through Wombs. Um, and this is his take on Luke 5, 29 to 30, but I really thought it was fitting for today, so I'm going to share it. We share identity. You identify with me. Though we are told we should not share space, the plates we pass preach solidarity. This is where we plant our flag, on the continent of joy. We will not be removed from our native land, evicted from our house of ebullient jubilation. Gifts are brought to the altar. Bread and wine, stories and laughter, fears and hope-laced tears. Presence is the greatest offering we can bring here. We present our bodies, the dedication of our full selves to this moment. The foam that rises when a glass is poured tells us there is no need to rush. Settle in. We give advice and shun advice given. We take what we like and leave what we don't. Regardless, it's all love. We talk about how days have been spent and get upset when responses are curt. Clearly, there have been a few rough ones. We pray and bless. Sometimes we curse, pardon our unrefined speech. We pass peace to each other and share pieces of ourselves that would have remained tucked away had we not sat down. We partake in future destiny as we break this bread and pass this cup and dish out portions of thinly sliced lamb. We always eat family style. Amen.